women's soccer leads the way for world sport. Trying to find the playbook for how to continue sports during the pandemic. Very, very difficult and challenging. That's Lisa Baird, commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League, now the first professional sports league in the United States to resume competition during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm your host, Ed Hula. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. The NWSL was formed in 2012 and is made up of nine teams across the U.S., including some of the world's top players. After putting the regular schedule on hold in March, in late May, the league announced the creation of the Challenge Cup, an alternative to quashing league play for 2020. Preliminary rounds started the last week of June, and the final is scheduled for July 27 at Rio Tinto Stadium in Sandy, Utah, not far from Salt Lake City. The first rounds of competition are now underway in Harriman, Utah, at Zions Bank Stadium. While fans of women's soccer may be enjoying the return of the competition, there still will be no spectators at the games. CBS is providing coverage nationally, and games will be carried live via Twitch. And more than a test of fitness for the teams, this tournament will also test how sports events can be organized in this era of the coronavirus. And if that's not enough, the NASL also finds itself on the front line of the question of athlete protest and expression during the playing of the national anthem at the beginning of each match. Nearly every player in the first matches of the tournament has taken a knee while the anthem was played. The NASL says players are free to express themselves, whether on the field or if they choose to remain in the locker room during the anthem. Joining us today is Lisa Baird, commissioner of the NASL since March. She came aboard at a most interesting time. Until last year, she was head of marketing at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, where we've gotten to know her across her 10 years on the job. Lisa Baird, did you have any idea when you started this position in March that just a few days later you'd be thrown into the storm that is the corona pandemic? No, I my first day was March 10th. I went to our Chicago office on March 11th, the first player in professional supports in the NBA tested positive. Adam Silver shut it down. And within a 24-hour period, I think every professional league had shut down or almost every professional league that we saw, um, certainly in the United States. And we we shut down as well. And, and I think the period thereafter was, it was trying to find the playbook for how to continue sports during the pandemic. Very, very difficult and challenging. You put the season on hold in March. I guess that was one of your first decisions as as commissioner. It was my first decision, obviously not one that I that anyone could have anticipated. And and then it was, you know, was followed by a period of me reaching out to colleagues in sports that friends and colleagues that I'd made over my career at other professional leagues and, and certainly in the Olympic sport world reached out to, you know, some people at the USOPC, you know, then, I, you know, we quickly realized we were sharing information back and forth. There was no, certainly, you know, I was very lucky to have people like Don Garber at MLS and the U.S. Soccer Federation was very helpful to us. They're a partner of ours. But what quickly became apparent is that each league had to put together its own playbook to return to sports. There wasn't one that we could all follow. Well, when did the idea of a, of a tournament get started? 
you know, when it, when it got started, I think around, we'd looked at several alternatives for a shortened regular season, but because we travel around to different teams, we really quickly realized that that just wasn't going to be possible. And, you know, for your listeners outside of the United States, who I'm sure are aware of this now, you know, according to our government regulations, the care of the, the care of healthcare, the healthcare is actually made at the state level those decisions, state health policies are made at the state level versus the federal level. Although the CDC and and all of our people were immensely helpful in coming out with guidelines. So what happens if, if you are a professional league and you have teams that operate across different states, it's incredibly challenging to try and put together something that is consistent statewide. That was a lot of the issue. So from that came the idea of us going to one place because we knew we could satisfy public health policies in one state versus trying to do it in 10. And we also were able to do something that created this idea of the protective bubble. That's where we are, the protective environment, the bubble tournament. Others are not doing that, but we and several other leagues elected that strategy. From then on, it was really just putting together the details of how we would work. And how did you end up in Utah as a venue? You know, that was one that early on we were watching the development of COVID. And, you know, people say, well, what did you learn from the NFL, the USOC regarding this? And, you know, I'm quick to say, like, what really came to me as I started to look at this was my training in technology. I have an, you know, I was at IBM for five years and I, I just have a respect for science and data. And the first, one of the first things I did, Ed, was form a task force comprised of 15 physicians, which gave me huge insight into how different leagues, because some of them are physicians for other leagues, that we were able to contact research, immense research capabilities at like people like the University of Washington that were tracking it. And Utah came up early as one where we could create the village and the bubble and have a protected environment and do it in a state where at the time the spread of COVID was almost non-existent. Now, across the United States, we are seeing it rising, but we were always planning to do this protective bubble and the village, and that was key to how we're keeping the athletes and the staff protected. Did you have to get local government support, Utah government support, in order to move forward with this? We worked hand in hand with the governor, Herbert, the lieutenant governor, the mayor, as well as um, the head of the COVID response, General Burton. And it was a hand in hand. They were endorsing us of particular help to us early on with Utah was Jeff Robbins, the head of the Utah Sports Commission. And I actually had a chance to talk to many of them. And many names who are familiar to the Olympic movement are on that sport commission, including our dear friend, Fraser Bullock. And Utah Sport Commission was immensely helpful. Utah's gone back into sports and, and hosted two events even prior to us, being the first team sport back. But the most important variable of this was our owner, Deloy Hansen, because he had the facilities that were in it, where it would enable Able us to do our group stage play at Zions Bay and then move to Rio Tinto for the semifinals and finals. Now you talked about a, a bubble. What kind of bubble are you creating for the for the players for for the officials? How is everybody keeping safe? Well, you know what? It, it's what so we early on started to call it a protective environment. And what we did is we created the village. And and I tried to use the idea of a village 
you know, it was a little bit of, you know, play off of what villages are like in the Olympic movement, but the village creates a hub for training competition here at Zion Bank, as well as being able to do the competitive play at the, the field. So we have practice training fields. So everybody here is within that protective environment when they're training, when they're playing in the group stage. But we also have created really thorough and deep protocols, not only medical protocols, but also how do we create the behaviors and inspire the behaviors um, so that everybody realizes that it's not only protecting their own health, but the health of the collective. And so far, so good, Ed. We've been really lucky here in Utah. We've been been able to sustain our, our record of negative, but we did early on have a tough incident and a, a really tough decision to make regarding a team who couldn't come to Utah because we couldn't satisfy the need they they you know there was a, a positive indi- indication of of covid and we couldn't have them come into the to the village so you have you have eight teams and i was going to ask what happens if a player doesn't feel comfortable with the situation you have a whole team which team was that that so could not we have a nine, we are a nine team league. It was the Orlando Pride. It was the Monday before the tournament. We we had the transfer to Utah, and they called us. They had you know they had indication, and they do have indication that there was positive spread of COVID. And the issue for us was not the number of people; it was the fact that it came up Monday before the tournament. Tournament, and we didn't have the timeline necessary to do the to put into place the positive protocol, which requires isolation and quarantine before you can interact with other players again. And so we had run out of time, but that did happen. And fortunately we had rehearsed and we had had everybody online with the principles of the tournament. So it was a a mutual, it was Orlando's decision to withdraw from the tournament. And um, we were very supportive of it, but deeply disappointed for the team because those players had trained hard for the tournament. Are there any financial implications for a team that doesn't participate in the tournament? No, there are not. And and one of the things that we did early on as an ownership group in support of the tournament, we do pay our players. We have over 250 players, roughly rough justice for how we do it. And we reached an agreement with our Players Association for continuation of health insurance benefits and compensation through the tournament it was done with an eye for the players supporting the tournament, but we also uh, early on allowed some players to opt out of it if they had an issue. So everything that we've done regarding the pandemic has been in collaboration with our PA and in support of players and what they wanted to do. We, we've heard about the 150, 160 rules uh, that the uh, Major League Baseball has had to put together to guide baseball through this attempt at a, at a season. Did you have to come up with a, a long list of, of protocols of things you do and don't uh, for, for, the, for the players, for the officials? Absolutely. And it's all transparently on our website. I think some leagues are doing that as well so people can see it. And so it, there's a thorough list of protocols, including PPE, sanitization, the village protocols in terms of behaviors, 
it, it's um, absolutely medical protocols for testing as well as for uh, what we do if you have a positive incidence. But it's all there on the website. And it was really important that we develop this. We communicate it to the players, the staff, that they were aware of all this before coming in and that we've managed it and kept people adhering to the protocols. Absolutely. Um, and, and you've sequestered, they're, they're sequestered or you've taken over a, a hotel as, as your, as your village. Is that right? That's right. We have, um, protected environments in three hotels because we have eight teams. We have another place where we're housing NWSL staff and our referees. We're all part of the testing protocol and we're all part of the protective environment. So we're not going out in, in, in the environment right now. Now, my hope is that with the PA, with the players, with everybody, we might be able to relax and, and have some you know, more social events at the, at the hotels for the players. So we're working on that right now, but we're not going you know, out broadly into the environment. And, and no interaction with fans. Well, you know, we, like many other leagues, have made the decision early on to do this fan-free. The reason that that was driven is we're following the public health guidelines of each of the states. And what you see, again, is with 50 states, there's 50 ways to approach it in the United States. So you actually see some, some other leagues starting to do that. We're watching it, but right now we are fan. We are not doing it in front of fans. Luckily, a lot of the players are now showing up and with safe distancing, wearing PPE in their section of the stadium, they're supporting their teammates. So there's definitely some some noise and and in the, in the actual seats of the stadium. Will the players be allowed to step out of the bu- bubble in any way? Can they go to shopping or restaurants, yeah. or is is the requirement that they all stay together? We're staying together as a, in the protective environment right now. We're really lucky. We have great catering. Um, that's providing all the meals. Um, we're trying to do some things to add some fun and attention in the hotels right now, but but not at this point. If it if it ends up that we have a conversation with the PA on that, it'll be done under the strictest protocols that are under our guidelines, particularly sanitization, hygiene, PPE, and um, many states now in the United States are requiring uh, the wearing of masks, the wear, you know, the social distancing, and that seems key to anything that we would want to do, which is to follow the health and safety guidelines of Utah as well as the CDC. And what is the uh, what is the, the the rule as far as wearing masks go? Uh, you wear your mask. Wear dot your dot mask. Um, you know, wear your mask. Social distance. Stay with your teammates. The one time where you're not doing that is when you're on the field of play. But the whole key to our hopeful success and protection is the serial testing that we're doing with um, the PCR test that we're using um, around the players. So it's laid out over the course of the tournament. Everybody who came in was required to have two negatives and have those test results in hand before they um, landed in Utah. Um, then when they, they got here, they were tested. We've now gone through our second iteration of testing. So we're getting more confident that the protected environment is working. Um, and um, the whole key is keeping it safe for people going forward. It's the one thing that I, I, I look at every night and, and make sure that the doctors um, are, are really, who are really helping guide us through this are happy is 
I look for that all clear sign from my medical uh, task force um, every time the testing is done. So and, it's the serial testing that's keeping us safe. And and how many people are you responsible for among the your staff, officials, players? Uh, well, I think right now staff, coaches, um, trainers, referees, players, we're probably at about 250 right here in, in, in NWSL. And that's a lot. That's a big tournament for us. Um, I have an incredible um, respect for those leagues that are dealing with even more um, people on the ground. But I think each league is keeping it pretty tight. So our each team here was limited to 35 people because that's what we felt we could safely support. And, and there's a cost involved with all of this. This is uh, this the testing doesn't come free. The housing, yeah. other other services you need to provide don't come free. How, how how do you cover the costs? Well, you know, one of the principles that we set at the start of the tournament was to be able to do it safely to do it in collaboration with our PA regarding compensation, and then finally to self-fund all of it. And um, that was an, uh, a principle between myself and our, our our 10 owners. We have a team coming in next year, Louisville. And for that, we needed to um, get sponsors in because we have no ticket revenue. And in order for us to get um, sponsorship revenue, we had to bring in new national sponsors. We had two um, from last year, Budweiser and Nike, but um, I was really pleased with our official announcement of tournament reopening. And we, we, as you said, we were the first team back. We were also um, thrilled to announce that um, Procter & Gamble and Secret would be the tournament sponsors. So it is the, the NWSL Challenge Cup um, brought to you by P&G and Secret. We were also able to announce Verizon as a national multi-year sponsor on the same day as the announcement of the tournament. And then just... A week ago today, um, we were able to announce Google coming in as our um, uh, partner, and they um, are doing great things already, um, you know, as one of the biggest companies on uh, in the globe. And you can find the schedule of games right there on Google when you go in. Um, but we all we couldn't have done this if we didn't have sponsors to help us pay for the tournament. And of course, our broadcast partners and our media partner um, CBS and Twitch. Yeah, what what are the uh, what is the value of of sponsoring this this tournament for PNG Secret Verizon? Well, you know, I'd like to say, you know, I'd like to say this, and and I was just on a, a call with my counterparts from the professional leagues that was set up and hosted by FIFA, and I told them how much fun it was. I've been in, I've been US, 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 and now it's fun to be talking to people in the international um, landscape again. And I met a, a number of my um, new colleagues in professional sports with FIFA. Um, so, what what we're able to do with the sponsors is provide them that this is, we think, you know, the best product on the planet. Um, we're trying to not only um, put on a tournament that we have, you know, 10 countries here represented, um, some of the best players on the planet. And we're, of course, lucky to have, I don't know exactly the count. I think we right have 12 to 15 of the U.S. women's national team players that won the Women's World Cup last year. But, you know, some of the names that are going to come out of this tournament as household names are actually going to be from 
um, they're from, you know, national teams and, and uh, around the globe. Um, so there's one player that I'm watching really closely. She's just a delight to watch. Her name is Dabinha. She's from Brazil. She played last night and you're just like, wow, you know, we just have a great product. And then, you know, I think sponsors are aware that women's sports is on the rise. Um, the momentum is there. And um, by sponsoring us, they're showing the support of strong, confident women who are, you know, playing at the top of the game. Um, and and the, the third part of it is um, I think that soccer for us, as we look at the the future profile of soccer in the United States, I just can't imagine a future 10 years. We've got, you know, our own season, which is growing and we're expanding into markets, Louisville being the next one to be added on next year and potentially more. We've got a Women's World Cup that has just been announced um, in Australia, New Zealand, and we have Australian players. We have, you know, the U.S. Women's National Team that will play in us, and, and we're part and parcel of helping them, um, uh, uh, FIFA and CONCACAF, create uh, more excitement for women's soccer. It's followed up with North America hosting the World Cup, which is going to be enormous for the United States in terms of putting soccer firmly solidly on the map here as a major sport and then you've got so you've got 26 world cup 27 women's world cup and i i would love to offer my opinion i don't have any control but i'd love to you know see the united states host it um in some of our facilities in 27 although i'm not a part of that decision um, and then in 28, we have the Olympic Games in L.A., which is an enormously exciting soccer market. Two of the best leagues in ML, two of the best teams in MLS play there. It's got an enormous soccer franchise. And I know that uh, Casey Wasserman and Kathy Carter are both um, soccer fans. So maybe they'll they'll give us a little more in the Olympics in, in 28. Um so, or at least I'm going to try and get them to. <laughs> I, you mentioned the international players on the various teams. Any difficulties having them come back into the United States, or were they all here prior to the uh, uh, pandemic outbreak? They were not. And I um, want to say that I am um, very, very happy with the co co cooperation we got from um, Customs Border and Control that uh, put into system, put into effect a system of um, waivers for the uh, global um, protection that all of the leagues were able to take advantage of. So it helped the NHL, it helped MLS, I think it helped NBA, and it sure as heck helped, helped us. And we got enormous cooperation and collaboration from them and also from the White House to help our players get back in. And so we're thankful to our government for enabling that. We couldn't have gotten them back in without it. Now your league is a, is a pace setter as far as staging a, a tournament like this at a, under the challenge of, of the pandemic. But then there's also the uh, uh, aspect of uh, uh, player protests and expression, uh, taking a knee. Um, this, this week we saw in the first matches, I, nearly all the players on, on each team take a knee during the playing of, of the national anthem um, without uh, fear of 
being banished, punished, or facing facing other sanctions. What is the uh, league guidance on athlete protest and expression? Yeah, we we we're a very young league, um, and um, we're thirteen years old, I think, and we've always had a, um, a policy to support our players' statements. This is not anything new. We're diverse. We have diverse player. Diverse. We're very inclusive, and um, you know, putting staging um, support for our PA to support Black Lives Matter was really important to us as an anti-racist statement. Um, it, it really was. And our players really wanted to use their platforms to make the statement that they felt was important. Um, we supported that after um, Saturday, which was a highly emotional moment for our players and for the league. Um, we expanded it and we made it even more flexible. Um, so I issued a statement um, to make sure that all Americans know that we, we as a league are supportive of the statement, the personal statement that you want to make because people's reaction to the national anthem is an intensely personal one in the United States right now. So whether people chose to kneel, whether they chose to um, um, uh, stand, whether they chose to do this publicly or in private, we're supportive of that. What those statements were made by the teams in the opening games. Um, and now what I'm excited to talk about is soccer um, because we're seeing some amazing play, including, including last night's games and, and two goals scored by Lynn Williams. Do you think other professional leagues will, will follow the course that you've taken? Do you see a, a softening, a, a greater flexibility among uh, professional sports leagues and and other organizations about about giving athletes the, the, the chance to express themselves? I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know um, because I'm so here. Um, I am here uh, really focused first on the safety of our players, second on making sure that the quality of soccer play is at the best in the world right now because we're hoping to get a lot of people watching not only soccer avid soccer fans but bring in new people um and um i'm really focused on making sure that the tournament is exciting fun and um that the players are are really doing what they need to do so that's my focus right now um what's what's next um what happens with the rest of the season? Because uh, the NASL is supposed to have its schedule run into October. What happens after the tournament is over? Well, we're meeting um, on that right. We're meeting and we're talking with our owners and our PA about that right now. So um, stay tuned. And what kind of lessons or guidance do you think other leagues and the Olympics might take away from your experience here, especially with the IOC in Tokyo 2020 still weighing the uncertainties they face in uh, the postponed uh, Olympic Games for Tokyo to 2021. It's very challenging. Um, and I think the key to our success was focus and the fact that we're small and very nimble. We have had to make on the ground decisions um, very quickly. Um, and um, work very closely with our owners, our players association, 
local um, health facilities. So building principles up front for what you're going to be doing for this with safety paramount and then building in a very nimble and agile decision-making structure to adjust would be two lessons learned that I had. Um, but I do think that what we are doing here in Utah is is far different from um, trying to stage an endeavor as complicated and complex as an Olympic Games. But you start out at a simple level, at a basic level, and perhaps others can draw from that experience and you know what? Don't don't cut any corners and do. Even though we got a lot of um, pushback from our internal staffs and even owners on early on, because we were we took a very conservative approach to our medical testing, and we were pushing on turnaround times um, to keep them long so that we have the chance to run tests through twice if we needed to. So that would be the one thing I've learned right now is don't take any don't. Don't cut corners on that testing protocol. Keep it conservative and do the right thing with your testing partner. We're really lucky to have AREP on the ground here. They're, I think, the number one lab in the United States, and the operation is running seamlessly and smoothly. Well, Lisa Baird, commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League, is overseeing the Challenge Cup tournament now underway in Utah. Good luck with with everything and uh, – Hope that it is a, a big success for you. Thanks so much, Ed. And um, uh, look forward to uh, uh, staying in touch with my friends in the Olympic movement. And thank you for joining us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm your host, Ed Hula. Please stay calm. Please stay safe. Your best source of news about the Olympics is aroundtherings.com.